You know, uh, I was thinking about the words of that chorus that we just finished up singing. You are free. We are free to, to celebrate and run in our liberty. And I was, it reminded me of a scene that I saw uh, a number of years ago when I was in Washington, D.C. for a conference. And um, I had an opportunity to go to the National Art Museum. And I looked at some of the religious art that was there. And one of the paintings really caught my eye and my heart. I've never forgotten. I took some pictures of it um, without a flash. I was abiding by the rules. But uh, the, the thing about the painting that caught my eye is that the artist had captured the reality of the glory of the resurrection. Because he had painted a tomb, and a tomb that had a rock slab pushed over. And all around the tomb there was darkness, but light was coming out of the tomb. And Jesus was coming forth. And the rock that had been pushed down was crushing all of the demons and Satan. You could see them crushed beneath the rock. And Jesus was bursting out of the tomb with all of the Old Testament saints coming behind Him in resurrection glory and power. And it was such a powerful visualization and imagery of what Jesus actually did when He not only died on the cross to atone for sin, but He rose again that sin would be forever defeated, that we might have life and liberty, and that we might run in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free. And the light comes out of the tomb. That's not where it goes out. That's where it comes out as Jesus is risen from the dead. And we're here today to celebrate that. I want to share with you a message and some thoughts this morning, predominantly from John chapter 3, verse 16, but um, or in that section. But before we get there, this morning at our sunrise service, we turned to John chapter 20, as, our, as, as is our tradition, and we read the story of the women going to the tomb early in the morning, and then Peter and John going and finding the tomb empty. And right before that, we are told that as Jesus had died on the cross, and uh, it had come to the end of the day, those incredibly sanctimonious Pharisees had appealed to, to uh, Rome to allow them to go ahead and execute the prisoners if they had not already died. They found that Jesus had already died because he himself had yielded up his spirit. And they wanted to take the bodies off of the crosses and we're told that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret follower of Jesus, he had been a secret follower because he was afraid of the Jews. But he went and asked that he could have the body of Jesus. And apparently he had a tomb and he was willing to place the body of Jesus in that tomb. And we're told in that passage that another, apparently a friend of his, whom we learn from John chapter 3, was a Pharisee and one of the rulers of the Jews by the name of Nicodemus. Also came to help him, bringing with him about a hundred pounds of, of burial spices that they would use to uh, wrap the body of Jesus. And so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, and perhaps some of their servants took the body of Jesus and these spices 
and they went and laid him in an empty tomb in which no one had ever yet been placed. And I thought about Nicodemus, because this is about three years after his first audience with Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, he's a religious leader, been a follower of of Judaism all the way to the top. But as he encountered Jesus in the first year of his ministry, the first time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, having left the carpenter's bench and declared himself in public ministry, he came into Jerusalem at the time of Passover, cleansed the temple. He actually did that twice in his ministry. But he cleansed the temple of the money changers and all of that. And the Scripture says that he was working signs and wonders. And Nicodemus, as he watched him, sensed that this man was from God. And he was curious to know more about him. And so he invited Jesus to have a conversation with him, apparently late at night. And so Nicodemus came to him and they began to have this conversation. And it's in that discussion that Jesus says some very interesting things to Nicodemus. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn with me to John chapter 3. Where we pick up the thread of the story. John chapter 3 verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I find this a very curious response to Nicodemus' introductory statement. He says, no one can do the signs that you're doing. I perceive that you're a good teacher. I perceive that you've come from God. I perceive that his anointing is on you. But Jesus goes right to the heart of Nicodemus. He, he kind of burns through all the fluff. You know how sometimes in conversation you kind of have to warm up? There was no warm-up here. Jesus just jumps right in and he says, Nicodemus, I really know what's on your heart. And here's the thing that I want to tell you, tell you, that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. That's the way of everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now, Jesus is about to tell Nicodemus a story that Nicodemus 
has already memorized. He's a Pharisee. He studied the Scriptures. They predominantly communicated by oral tradition. They told the story. They learned it verbatim. They shared it with one another. They constantly were transmitting the story. Nicodemus knew this passage from Numbers. But Jesus is about to explain to him the real meaning behind a story that is 1,500 years old. He says to him, Truly I say to you, we speak what we know, verse 11, and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. As Jesus referred to the passage in Numbers about the serpent in the wilderness, He was bringing to mind something that Nicodemus knew very well from his Bible history classes. He knew the story of the Exodus. He knew the journey of the Israelites from the land of Egypt under the cruel hand of Pharaoh to the promised land where God would make of them this great nation. And along the way, they had all kinds of difficulties. They, they had all kinds of trials and troubles. They ran out of water. They ran out of food, they had different issues, and each time God met them. But then, finally, they ran out of patience. (laughs) They had enough water, they had enough food, they had the other things that they needed, but they were exhausted with their patience. They were tired of running around out there in the wilderness. If you can believe it, they wanted to kind of go back to Egypt and make bricks. I mean, I, I guess that's bored. Because before they left Egypt, Pharaoh was making them gather their own straw and dig their own mud to make the bricks. And yet they said, we're we're tired of this, we want to go back. And I want to read that passage from Numbers because it's very insightful as to what Jesus is saying here. In Numbers chapter 21, you don't have to turn there unless you just want to, but I want to read the passage beginning in verse 4, Numbers 21, 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. This is what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and water, and we loathe this miserable food. Now, they were talking about manna from heaven. They were, God was feeding them. God had provided drink for them. They had everything they needed. And now they're complaining. We'd have been better off in Egypt. We're not going to a promised land. We're going to die out here. And they began to speak against God and against Moses. And so the scripture says, the Lord 
sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Well, there was a ray of illumination. Because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. So here's the scene. All of a sudden they realize now they've got big trouble. They were just running around out there, frustrated and tired of the journey. But now they have a problem. There's snakes that have infiltrated the camp. I didn't see the movie, but the, the, um, the previews kind of creeped me out. Snakes on a plane. And here's snakes on the journey, and everywhere they turn, there are these serpents popping up out of nowhere, and they're biting them, and they're dying. And these are not harmless things. These are poisonous snakes. And so uh, they come back to Moses and say, talk to God for us. Intercede. We need some help here. And so as they do that, Moses begins to pray for them, and this is what God says to him. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, this is a very strange remedy. I was a Cub Scout, and then I became a Boy Scout, and from my very earliest childhood, I was fascinated by first aid, and I got my Cub Scout first aid kit, then I got my Boy Scout first aid merit badge, and I got into that in a a big way, and in Florida, I, I haven't seen too many snakes up here, but in Florida, they do have snakes. They have water moccasins. They have rattlesnakes. They have a lot of snakes in Florida. And so um, one of the things I studied was how to care for a snake bite. And I had this snake bite kit. Never had to use it, thankfully. I always imagined it using it on someone else. Never imagined using it on me. But, but I never had to use it, and I'm grateful for that. But it, it, it was a way of... Uh, you know, incising the, the uh, bite and uh, putting on a tourniquet and bleeding off the venom. And I, I don't even think they do that so much anymore. They just take you to the hospital and give you antivenom. But back in those days, you know, it was a little different story. So, so I had this snake bite kit that was used to treat the poisonous snake bite. The last thing that you would tell a person to do who had been bitten by a poisonous snake was turn and look at a snake on a stick. If you look, forget the first aid, forget the kit, don't worry about it, you don't even have to lay down. Just turn and look at that snake that's on the the stick over there, and you're going to be fine. I'm sure, I am sure, that many of the Israelites said to themselves, there's no way. Moses is messing with us. He has lost his mind. He made this replica of these snakes out of bronze and he puts it on his big stick and he's got it stuck in the ground. And he wants us to believe that if we just look at that thing, we're going to live. But you know what? 
At some point in time, it's inevitable because of the story. At some point in time, someone got bit and they looked at the bronze serpent. They turned and looked and there was no harm to them. And word spread. Did you hear about Joe? Joe got bit by a snake and he looked at that thing on the pole and he's fine. Now everybody's looking at this thing on the pole. They're all beginning to realize that they can look and live. And that God's Word is reliable. And they believe. Now there's a lot to that story. And I'm not suggesting for a moment this morning that it is in any way allegorical. By that I mean that it didn't actually happen. I believe that that story is as historically accurate as our own civil war. That it literally happened just as it's recorded in the Scriptures. But I also believe that everything that happens in the Scriptures happens for a purpose. That God always has a message in there. And that in every event, there is a message about Jesus Christ. That on virtually every page of the Old Testament, there is a beacon pointing to Christ. Telling us about Christ. Showing us who He is. And so, as they began to experience being bitten by serpents, looking at the serpent on the pole, and finding that they were completely healed and they could live, God was building a message. And it may have just been for Nicodemus. We get the benefit. But Jesus said to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That all who believe in Him will have eternal life. Nicodemus knew some things. He would have made some connections. One of the things he would have realized is that the serpent throughout the Scripture is a symbolic representation of Satan. He would have connected with that. He would have also connected with the fact that every single person has been bitten by Satan and has in their body the deadly venom of sin and rebellion. That every one of us has been snake bit. It's not good grammar, but it works. Every one of us has been snake bit. Every one of us has been envenomated. Every one of us has in our bodies the seed, the serum, the venom of sin and death. And without a remedy, we're going to die. Without a remedy, we're doomed eternally. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, if you recall that Moses 
made an imitation serpent out of bronze and lifted him up on a stick. And as strange as it seemed, all they had to do was look at that serpent and they could live. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to take the image, the sin of the world upon Himself. For a few moments of time, He will appear as the serpent because He will take the sin of the world upon Himself as He's lifted up on a cross. And if you will look at Him and believe, you will have eternal life. There is healing in the cross. God gave to the Israelites a very bizarre cure that in their time must have seemed incredibly strange. But actually it pointed to, it prefigured the day when Jesus Christ Himself would be lifted up on a cross So that everyone who looked at Him with faith, realizing that they had been bitten by the snake of evil and carried in their bodies the venom of sin, if they looked at Jesus and believed Him, they would have eternal life. Jesus goes on to explain to Nicodemus what's behind the story. He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. The world is condemned already. God sent His Son into the world that all through Him could be saved. Jesus explains to Nicodemus that all the story of Scripture is a love story of God seeking out the hearts of men and women. God coming to the rescue God loving us and providing for us a remedy. Friends, this morning we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this morning that this is unique in all the religions of the world. Not that I name Christianity among them. Perhaps in some realms it is a religion, but not the true faith. Because in all the religions of the world, there is one thing unique about our faith in Jesus Christ. He is alive. He is risen. His tomb is empty. Something happened that is pivotal, that is unparalleled in any other faith of any other people of any other place on the planet. It's a story of God who came into humanity, came into the world, came into the race to redeem us and pursued us. 
And if you go all the way back to the beginning and you look at Abraham, Abraham did not attend some goals planning seminar someday in Ur of the Chaldees and come home and say to his wife, Honey, I have a new life goal. I think I'm going to, uh, with your help, become the father of a nation. We're going to start a Hebrew tribe. And, and we're going to do something wonderful for humanity through our offspring. Uh, Abraham never had that experience. He never made up his mind to become the father of a multitude. In fact, Abraham was fatherless uh, or childless. He had no children. They were getting older. But one day God came to him. And God said, Abraham, I want you to come and leave Ur, and leave your family, and leave your, your business, and all the people that you know, and follow me, and I will make you a great nation. That was God's plan. God came to Abraham. Abraham didn't go to God. God came to him. God called him. God made it clear. God let him out. God is the one who started the Hebrew nation. Moses did not decide one day... I think I'll start the Jewish religion. I've had a bunch of ideas. I've been listening to Pharaoh. I grew up in his court. I went to his schools. I've got some pretty good ideas about how to do the law. I think I'll make up a bunch of rules and we'll start a new religion called Judaism. Moses had nothing of the kind on his mind. He had totally given up on politics. He had turned his back on any kind of leadership. In fact, he was running for his life because he was wanted for murder in Egypt. He was on the backside of Midian taking care of a flock of sheep. And one day God came to him. God visited him. There was a bush that caught fire, but it didn't burn up. And Moses said, I need to go see what this thing is. And he went over to look. And as he approached the bush, he noticed that it wasn't even beginning to to deteriorate at all. There's this flame coming out of the bush, but nothing's happening. And he heard a voice all of a sudden say, Moses, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. And all of a sudden, Moses realized that he was in a direct confrontation with God himself. And God said to Moses, go back and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. That was God's idea. And when they got out in the wilderness, God said to Moses, come up on this mountain. And when Moses went up in the mountain, God wrote himself on tablets of stone the essence of his own character. And told Moses, these are the laws, the Ten commandments that you were to go and give my people that will make them unique. God revealing His character to Moses. David did not decide one day, we're jumping history by about 500 years at a leap here. Abraham 2,000 years ago, Moses 1,500 years before Christ. Now David roughly 1,000 or so years before Christ. David did not decide, I think, well, I think I'll become the great king of Israel. David was out shepherding the flock, 
probably 14 or 15 years old, maybe even younger. And one day, God said to Samuel, Go to the sons of Jesse and anoint the one that I point out to you. David never intended to be the greatest king Israel ever knew. David never intended to start a dynasty from whom the king of kings and lord of lords could trace the lineage that would reign on the throne of David forever. That was never in David's mind until God came to him and called him from shepherding the sheep. And friends, when Jesus Christ invaded human history in Bethlehem, that was God's idea. All through the history of mankind, the Bible underscores those simple words in John 3.16, God so loved the world. God called Abraham. God called Moses. God called David. God sent Jesus. God has been reaching out to us, calling out to us, coming to us. This is different from any other religion in the world, which is man's attempt to somehow connect with God. In in all of the other religions, people are looking for a way to find God. But in, in Christ, God has come to us. And in Jesus Christ, the Scripture says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And look at the words very carefully, because some people have such a difficult time with this. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through Him should be saved. He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Sometimes, as Christians, we get accused of being bigoted. Sometimes, as Christians, we get accused of being narrow-minded. People say, you guys are stuck up. You think you're the only way. You think you've got the only truth. You think your way is the only right way. There's only one problem with that statement, the way it's said. It's both the problem and the solution. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. But it's not that we have the only way that we're imposing on the world. Unless you become a Christian, you cannot have eternal life. It's true because it's true. It's true because God Himself has said it. As I pointed out, all the other religions of the world are man trying to somehow reach out and connect with God. But in Jesus Christ, God is in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. God says, I know what the problem is. I gave Moses the representation of my character. I explained to him how it is that human beings should live made in my image after my character. This is what they're to be like. And you know what? None of us have kept those commandments. None of us have kept the rules. None of us have followed the way. God says there must be a remedy for sin. There has to be 
somehow that those who have been bitten by the serpent can live. God's love compels Him to provide a remedy. And in Jesus Christ, that remedy is, if you have been bitten by the serpent of sin, you can look to Jesus and live. Every one of us has had that bite. Every one of us has broken those commandments. Every one of us has come short of the glory of God. And I want you to know this morning that God is not great on the curve. He does not pull any punches. He doesn't let anybody off because they're a favorite. God is holy. He is is just. He is completely righteous. There's no sin in Him. He dwells, the Scripture says, in unapproachable light. No one can come near Him without purity and holiness and being clean and spotless. And none of us meet those requirements. And so the Scripture says, God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world. Jesus did not come to bring condemnation. Because we're already condemned. We already have the problem. We're already under the curse. We've already been bitten. We need a Savior. We need a solution. We need healing. And there's no other person on the planet that can give it to us. Because every beginner, every founder of every religion of the world lies dead, rotting in the grave. But Jesus Christ has proven that He is King of kings and Lord of lords and Savior of the world, that death cannot keep Him back because He came out of the grave. My friends, if you go back and study the, the reality of the history of the resurrection and you examine the testimony, no one in the first several hundred years of Christianity even questioned the authenticity of the resurrection. Because it was incontestable. Not only did the Pharisees want him dead, they wanted to ensure that the very thing that happened would never happen. They went back to to, um, Pilate and they said, you need to give us a Roman guard. We need to go and make sure that the disciples don't come and steal that body because they talked about maybe Him coming back from the dead. Now, that's very peculiar because that was the last thing that was on the disciples' mind. We know that from reading the story. They didn't expect that. But somehow or another, the Pharisees got it. They were scared. They said, he, they might steal his body. We won't be able to find it. They'll go bury him somewhere else in the woods. We'll never discover the body. And then they'll say he rose from the grave. And oh boy, that's going to be a bigger mess than what we've already got. So give us a Roman guard and let that guard go and protect the tomb. Now you may not know this about Roman guard, but there was at least six of them. And if a Roman soldier ever lost a prisoner, he lost his life. They didn't mess around. They weren't playing games. We have a hard time with some of that. But there's nations in the world like that today. I won't name the country, but I heard about, I mean, probably figure it out if you put two and two together, but but I heard about... uh, sort of an ally in the Middle East that had sent some young men over here to train to fly fighter planes of their military, their Air Force. 
And as it turns out, these young men were not getting it fast enough and come to find out they had left the austerity of their nation and they had come to America where there was some interesting opportunity for vice. And the commanding officer discovered that uh, these young pilots weren't paying attention and they were doing a little bit too much of extra free time. So he called the whole contingency back home. Lined them up on the tarmac when they got off the plane and had another officer walk behind them and put a bullet in the head of every fourth pilot as they dropped to the pavement in front of their peers, dead and bleeding from head wounds. He said to them, you go back and you learn to fly and don't you do anything else. We have a hard time connecting with that. But there are people in the world like that. And the Roman soldier knew that if he lost his prisoner, he was dead. And there were six of them. And they are sent to guard the tomb of Jesus. Tell me they went to sleep. Tell me they all six of them fell asleep. Tell me they never heard disciples, a dozen of them, come roll a big boulder away from the entrance. Tell me they never knew that happened. Tell me that all of that went on and they stole the body of Jesus without anybody knowing it. I guarantee you that didn't happen. In fact, the Bible tells us that that Roman guard went back to the Pharaoh, uh, to, to the Pharisees, and and to uh, to Pilate, and said, "You won't believe what happened. That tomb is empty, and he came out of it. There's angels back there. These are Roman soldiers." They're not given to delusion. And the Pharisees said, I tell you what, this is a real sticky situation. We're going to pay you, and we're going to pay Pilate, and we're going to smooth it over, because we do not want this story getting out. You can bet your bottom dollar that they did not fall asleep. Jesus came out of that tomb. And friends, listen, the proof is in the pudding. Do you remember when some friends had a, a man who was paralyzed? They brought him to Jesus to be healed, and they couldn't get close enough to Jesus. He was teaching in this home, and the crowd was so thick they couldn't get their friend through. And so the scripture says they dug a hole in the roof. It was a mud roof. They dug a hole and then they let their friend down right in front of where Jesus was. And Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. And the crowd kind of chuckled. And... uh they said, who do you think you are to forgive sin? And he said, well, I'll tell you what. I agree with you. 
it's very difficult for you to see if any sin has been forgiven. So that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sin. He looked back at the man laying at his feet, paralyzed, and said, Get up and walk. And the man got up and walked. The proof is in the action. The grave could not keep Jesus because he is the Son of God. Sin could not hold him down because he is the Son of God. Though he bore the sin of the world on the cross and died in our place, it could not keep him in the grave because he is the Son of God. And Paul tells us in the book of Colossians, That on that day, he triumphed over all the powers of darkness and over all the powers of hell. Because he rose triumphantly out of the grave and made a public display of them, not only on the cross, but in the resurrection. And if you have the capacity to visualize, and that's why that picture in the National Art Gallery meant so much to me. You have the power to visualize that image on that first resurrection morning. I can tell you where Satan was and all the demons of hell. They were collected in one place on the planet in one time, and they had one mission. Keep Jesus in the ground. They couldn't even slow Him down. They couldn't begin to hold any resistance against the Son of God who had defeated the powers of darkness and paid the price of sin and was able to liberate us and free us from all that held us in bondage, rose triumphantly out of the grave and lives forevermore at the right hand of God the Father. His disciples saw Him. 500 people at one time saw Him. Those on the road to Emmaus saw Him. Mary saw Him. Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw Him. Many others saw Him. Over the 40 days that He walked and ate and talked and visited with all the people that had seen Him die, He is alive. And the Scripture says that God did not send Him into the world to condemn the world. We're already Snake bitten. We already have the problem. He sent him into the world to save the world so that everyone who would look to him could live. And unlike any other, he has come out of the ground to prove that he is indeed the Son of God. Jesus himself said, I am the way, both the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father unless He comes by me. And as Jesus concludes His conversation with Nicodemus, He says, And this is the judgment, verse 19, that light is come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, but his deeds, lest his deeds should be exposed, that he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Just a few chapters ago, as John tells us the story of the beginning, in John chapter 1, we read, verse 9, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. 
And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of an only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, I want to tell you this morning, Jesus Christ is alive. He is risen from the dead. He has paid the price for sin. Like the bronze serpent in the wilderness wandering, He is the one who is lifted up on the cross as the atonement for our sin. He has cleansed us, died to redeem us, and come out of the ground to prove that He not only paid the price, but that He is who He says He is, and that His Word is true. He is the true light, which comes into the world and brings light to every man. And to as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become the sons of God, daughters of God, children of God, even to those that believe on His name. In these closing moments, I just want to talk to you very clearly. I said three different times in three different ways that Jesus Christ is alive this morning. But I want to give you the fourth witness. The witness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God attests to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. He attests in your life. He speaks it in your heart. Those of you this morning that are here that know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, your heart bears witness to the truth of what I'm saying. And those of you that are here this morning that have not made that decision to turn from your hopeless efforts at the snake bite and look to Jesus. You know you're infected. You know you are. You know you've sinned. I don't have to tell you. You don't need me to prove that to you. I don't have to tell you that. You know that because the Holy Spirit of God drives that home to your heart. Every time you hear a message like this, there's something that happens in your heart that says... You're separated from God. You still have venom in your veins. It's going to kill you. You know that's true. And the Holy Spirit of God also accompanies the declaration of the Word. He promises to do that. When the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ is announced clearly, the Holy Spirit promises to to drive it home to the heart. And you know that He's alive today because He's speaking to you. And He's inviting you. I did not come to condemn you. 
I came to redeem you. I came because I love you. I came to save you. I have come that you can look and live. I want to speak very clearly to you this morning. This is Easter Sunday. I only see some folks on Easter. I only see some folks at Christmas. I want to tell you that the Scripture says, the Word of God, the Spirit of God will not always strive with men. And he that stiffens his neck, having been often reproved, will suddenly be cut off and without remedy. You never know when your moment's going to come. I used to go into the fire department every morning when I was a paramedic. I'd go down to the fire department at shift change and I'd find two guys sitting there. They'd be reading the morning paper, and I'd say, good morning, how are you? And they both answered the same, this pair. We're doing great. We're reading the obituaries, and our name's not there. I went in one day, and one of them wasn't there. I had been away from the area that night, and so I didn't hear the call. But I learned that the night before, the other one had had a massive heart attack and died on the spot, and there was nothing we could do as a squad to rescue him. The next day, later that week, his name was in the obituary. We don't know our times. I would never try to manipulate you. I would never try to scare you. I'm just telling you the truth. You don't know your time. Jesus Christ did not come to condemn you, friends. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He came to save you. He came to redeem you. He doesn't want you to get religious. He wants you to get life. He doesn't want to turn you into some weirdo. He wants to to give you the abundance of all that He designed you to be. He wants you to come into a relationship with Him. He wants to forgive your sin. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to make you whole. He wants to clear the venom out of your life. He wants to give you eternal life. To as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the sons of God. And so my challenge is to you this morning. Will you look and will you live? Will you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ raised up on the cross and believe as strange as it seems that that is the remedy for your snake bite? It's the remedy for your sin. It's the solution for the way back to God. Jesus Christ wants to heal you today. And bring you home. Father, I come to you this morning in Jesus' name. I want to thank you that we serve a risen Savior. 
that we know that he is living. Not just because the evidence is overwhelming. Not just because of the testimony of the apostles and the prophets. Not just because of the affirmation of the New Testament as true as it all is. We know that he's alive today because he lives within our hearts. We have a connection with the living God. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that has not looked to the cross and turned away from their sin, that you would speak to their heart this morning. I pray, Lord, that they would make that decision this day, today, while it is still called today. For today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Lord, we your Holy Spirit, by your grace and mercy, confirm what I have said this morning under your anointing. Will you testify to the truth of it in the heart of every man and woman here this morning that may not know you? Speak to them clearly of the truth. Show them how much you love them. Show them that they can look by faith to Jesus and come home to you and have eternal life. For this life is in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, move upon us in this moment. With our heads still bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to offer you a simple, simple remedy, if you mean it from your heart. If you came into this room this morning and you realize by now that you came in without Jesus, you don't have to leave without Him. If from the very depths of your heart you can pray to God and mean it, Lord, I know that I've sinned, I know I'm infected. I know that I'm in rebellion. But today I turn. I turn from all of that and I turn to you. And I look to Jesus. I believe that he died and shed his blood for my sin. I believe he is the remedy. And today I take him as my Savior. And Lord Jesus, I invite you to be my Lord and my Master. And from this day forward, I will follow you. Lord, I'm not signing up to be religious. I just want to have a relationship with you, O God. And so, Lord Jesus, I come. And I give you my life. And I want to walk with you all the rest of my days. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. If you mean business with God, friends, He means business with you.
He will change your heart and life this moment and release you from the death sentence of that fatal snake bite. May God give you the grace to make that choice. Amen.